Um, we're going to be in Leviticus once more, trucking through Leviticus at breakneck speed. Yeah, not really. Um, we're going to be chapter 5 tonight into chapter 6. I am prepared as far as notes go and everything else to get through chapter 7, but I really just want to see how the Lord leads it tonight, which means we're not going to get to the end of chapter 7. So let's just be real. Um, chapter 5, verse 14 is where we're going to pick it up because that's where we left off. Uh, let's pray one more time and just kind of settle in and see what the Lord has for us tonight. Whether we recognize it or not, Father, we really are desperate for you, just like we sang. We're probably more desperate than we, we, we understand. We want to hear from you. It is good to open the Bible and read and study just on that real simple level. But we're not really here just to do a Bible study. We want to know you, Jesus. We want to know you. We want to know you. We don't want to play church and go through the motions. We want the real. And Lord, I pray that even though we're kind of trudging through technical stuff tonight, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would illuminate the Word and we would see Jesus in the Word and we would see ourselves and how it all works out. And Lord, we would just hear your voice speaking into our individual situations and lives and needs. And Lord, that is only possible through the power of your Holy Spirit. So, Jesus, get all the glory, and uh, we just give you this night. In your name we pray, amen. Amen, amen, amen. Leviticus chapter 5, picking it up in verse 14. Let me start by just saying this. God is holy. And if, you know, you forget anything about this book, remember that. And, and it's easy to get lost in the minutia of all the little details of the sacrifices and this and that. But sometimes it's good to remember the big picture stuff. And, and if you had to just pin one label on what this book, Leviticus, is about, it talks about the holiness of God. That God is holy, altogether separate, altogether different. And, and really what this book is, is it's a worship book for God's people. And it's amazing. It picks up where Exodus left off. And Exodus left off with God giving them the tabernacle, which was a tent, which was meant to be right in the middle of their camp. And God was declaring, I want to be right in the middle of your camp. No, I want to be right in the middle of your lives. I want to be right, I want to be with my people, but God is holy. So the question is, how do we as sinful people approach a holy God? That's the, what this book is about. It talks about how to worship him, how they were to approach him. How are they to live their lives in a way that pleases him? Because it's all about him and his holiness. Amen? And so, again, you know, obviously Old Testament, obviously there's things that don't apply to us specifically. But as I've said the last few weeks, Leviticus is laying down this foundation that we might understand New Testament theology based on this Old Testament historical stuff that Israel went through, the, the law. Amen? And so we're learning so much. And really, what we have to keep coming away with is that it's all fulfilled it all points to Jesus. And we could just, you know, say this and stop here that we as sinful people can only approach a holy God because of Jesus. 
because of what he's done on our behalf. And he has made us holy. And he continues to sanctify us and teach us how to walk in him. And so lots of stuff. But that's kind of the big picture stuff again. Tonight we're in that section that we are starting with. And it's the first seven chapters. In those first seven chapters, um, God is giving to Moses and the Levites five offerings. And and this is dealing with their, their worship of God. Five different offerings. Three of those offerings were what were called voluntary offerings. That's exactly what it, you think it means. You didn't have to bring them. You could bring them if you want to bring them. And those had to do with consecration, that is setting yourself aside for God and dedication to God. The last two um, offerings dealt with, or were, excuse me, were mandatory. And those were not so much dealing with consecration and dedication, but with cleansing of sin. And so, if you guys remember them, the first offering was the burnt offering, then the grain offering, then the peace offering, and then last week we looked at the sin offering, and then tonight we're going to look at what's called the guilt offering, or some translations have the trespass offering. And so that's where we're starting, chapter 5, verse 14, we're going to look at this last offering, and then the, the rest of chapter 6 and 7 uh, kind of are like an appendix kind of goes back to each one of those offerings and gives a little bit more detail and clarification and stipulations and things like that. So let's pick it up. I just want to read it through as I do often, and then we'll come back to it. So let's read together chapter 5, verse 14, the guilt offering. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord... He shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. There it is. He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering and he shall be forgiven. Verse 17. If anyone sins doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandment ought not to be done. Though he did not know it, then he realizes his guilt. He shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring it to the priest, excuse me, bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock or or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he had made unintentionally and he shall be forgiven. Verse 19, it is a guilt offering and he has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely, if any of all the things that people do and sin thereby... If he has sinned and realizes his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that he was uh, committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it full, listen, and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish, out of the flock, or its equivalent, for a guilt offering. Verse 7, The priest shall make an atonement for him before the Lord 
um, and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that he has done, thereby according, uh, becoming guilty. So, gosh, I know that's always a mouthful when we read all of those things uh, just at one chunk, but we're going to break it down a little bit. Um, last week, we looked at what was called the sin offering. The sin offering and the guilt offering are very, very similar. In fact, if you fast forward to chapter 7, verse 7, it actually says there's one law concerning the sin offering and the guilt offering. They're, they're more or less the same offering. Um, there's some unique features about this, and we'll talk about those. That's kind of where we'll put our focus. But in essence, these sin offering and the guilt offering was an offering that you would bring if you sinned unintentionally. And we talked a lot about that last week, how even if you sin unintentionally, a sin is a sin, and you're still guilty before the Lord. Even as he says at the end of chapter 5, he says, um, you have incurred guilt before the Lord, and you need to be atoned for. So you could bring a sacrifice, and it went through all the various kinds of sacrifices. You'd bring your animal to the priest. You would lay your hand on the animal, transferring your guilt symbolically to that animal. Animal killed, blood splattered. And so it's the same exact offering in its procedure and the basic meaning. But here's the thing. There are some unique qualities to the guilt offering. And by the way, um, how many of you guys have a translation that says trespass offering? Yeah, so there's a you know, little debate. I don't even know if it qualifies as in a debate as to whether it should be called a trespass or a guilt offering. The word simply means guilt, trespass, an offense. You've done this thing that has brought guilt, and so you've, you've sinned against God. So here's a couple of things that are unique, and, and these, I think, are noteworthy, okay? So um, here's some unique qualities about the, the guilt offering. Number one, if you're taking notes, um, the guilt offering was specifically dealing with sins concerning the holy things. Did you guys catch that? Look at the first verse, verse 15, actually. If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things. What does that mean? Sinning in the area of the holy things. Here's what's interesting to me. This is what this means. The idea is, is that there's some kind of thing done amiss or uh, forgotten about or done wrong in connection to the things pertaining to these sacrifices to the tabernacle worship, to the things concerning God, the holy or set-apart things. Does that make sense? For example, you bring an offering for a specific sin or whatever that's done, but you bring the wrong kind of offering, or you bring an offering with a blemish. Or let's just say, you know, you, you are a priest or a son of the priest, and some of the meat from an offering comes in, but you were unclean ceremonially. What does that mean? There's a Trust me, there's chapters on it later. We'll talk about it. But let's just say you're unclean and you eat of that meat. Oh my goodness, that's actually a sin. But, but I wasn't trying to sin. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a priest's son. I'm trying to do what's right. Yeah, but you were unclean and you touched that. Does that make sense? You forget to bring a tithe. Or you bring, you know, a tithe for this. But, you, you know, you, you, the point is, there are so many rules. No one can keep them all straight. And even, listen, even in the priesthood or the Levites or those who are just trying to be good, you know, average citizens of Israel and bringing their sacrifices or their offerings, there were so many laws 
and rules that it was very easy to have the good intention but do it wrong. Does that make sense? And what does God say? That's a sin. That was wrong. But it was with the holy things. Yeah, but it was wrong. And this is what this reminds me of, you guys, is that it's just a reminder, I think, that even in our best efforts of trying to live a religious life or try to do good for God, we still fall miserably short. Can anybody identify with that? You know, we talk a lot about, oh, sin and doing things wrong. And, you know, it reminds me of Romans. You know, and Steve it was awesome when we went through Romans. I'm currently going through it just personally on my own. And, and there in chapter 1, right, right off the giddy, it's like the wrath of God is stored up against sinners, and it just goes through, like, the whole, this, these, these old wicked, gross sinners out there, not you guys, the, the wicked, gross ones out there, who are like idolaters and fornicators, you know, the, the, the real sins, the gnarly ones. And he's, like, condemning them. But then he puts the clutch in and shifts gears and goes to chapter 2, and he goes, and who do you think you are, you know? And he basically brings an indictment against, like, religious people and moral people. I like to call them moral sinners because they look good on the outside, and they do all the right things, and they go to church, and, but guess what? They still sin, and they still mess up. And he talks about the religious sinners, and he sums it all up there in chapter 3 when he says that classic statement that we all know, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter if you're a religious sinner, a moral sinner, or a dirty, filthy sinner. We're just all sinners, right? And it just reminds us that even when we're trying to do right, we mess up. We mess up. Well, that's real encouraging. It actually is encouraging. To me, it actually is encouraging. Because it's just this reminder, and I think what this is beginning to touch on, here at the very beginning of the law itself, I personally believe that there's this undercurrent that he's already touching on this, this fact that you cannot become righteous before God by keeping the law. Why? Because nobody can keep the law. Amen or no? Nobody in their best effort can keep the law. Did you know not one person in the history of the world has ever been right with God because they kept the rules good enough? Nobody keeps them. Not pastors, not preachers, not priests back in the day. Nobody, we, everybody falls short. And so I believe right from the beginning what we're seeing is that even in our best efforts, even in our religious efforts, in fact, what does Isaiah say in Isaiah uh, 46, 6? He says, your righteousness is like filthy menstrual rags. There's a vivid picture for you. That's not Jason. That's the Bible says that, actually. It doesn't say your wicked, gnarly, rebellious sin. What does it say? Your righteousness. Your best stab at it in your flesh, trying to impress God with your ability, your righteousness. It doesn't work. So right from the beginning, I think what God is declaring is that even in our best effort, nobody gets to God by keeping the rules good enough. And what does this teach us in the New Testament? This is setting the stage for the New Testament where Paul declares in Galatians and in Romans that nobody's made righteous by keeping the law. In fact, the whole reason for this law, ladies and gentlemen, is to show us that we can't keep it. And to show us that we are desperately, desperately in need of grace. Amen? It's to bring us to that place where we say, God, I can't do it even in my best effort. And God goes, I know. We need grace and mercy. And that's how a man or a woman has always been forgiven by God, is just coming on the basis of faith and grace and relying on his mercy. So 
All that to say is right from the beginning, that's what it speaks of. But there's another thing, very specifically, uh, that the guilt offering deals with. Number one, just to remind you, was sins concerning the holy things. I like to use a little bit of an old English accent when I say holy. Um, number two, um, you know, this is another thing too. Like if you, if you were, another example would be like if you ate the Lord's chips or something. I'm sorry, that's not funny. Number two. I'm going to clip that out of the podcast. Um, no, I'm not. Okay, the second thing is, number one was concerning holy things, sins done amiss concerning holy things. But secondly, sins against the Lord by sinning against their, your neighbor. Look at chapter 6. This is actually pretty important. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, verse 2 actually, if anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security through robbery, oppression, I'm just kind of skimming at this point, something lost but was found and lied about, swearing falsely. Um, so, so this next thing that would qualify for bringing a guilt offering is if you sin against the Lord by sinning against your neighbor. And by the way, can I just point out that the phrase on that is actually the way it's phrased is important. A sin against the Lord by sinning against your neighbor. Did you see how God phrased that? You mean, we'll talk about what the sins against the people are in a second. Let's just say you rob somebody or you do, you do somebody dirty, you do somebody wrong, you cheat them, you steal from them or whatever. You've sinned against that person. But what is God declaring? Ultimately, guess what? First and foremost, you've sinned against God by sinning against your neighbor. Does that make sense? Ultimately, every one of our sins, even though it might be against another person, ultimately all of our sin is against God. You know who understood that really well was David. Remember Psalm 51? Psalm 51 was written by David after the Bathsheba incident. And I used to think the Bathsheba incident was like this one-time fling. He had an affair with this woman, got her pregnant. But that's true. He lusted after her, had an affair with her, but then he covered it up for a year or nine months. Lied about it. Had, it. had her husband murdered, not only her husband, but his fellow soldiers that were with him. So David commits adultery, lies, deceives, and murders. And there came a time when he was finally called on the carpet by uh, Nathan, and he's broken. I mean, true repentance. He really, not just sorry he got caught, but he's like busted. And that's when he pens Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, he, he's, and I'm paraphrasing, but he says something to this effect, against you and you only have I sinned and done this wickedness in your sight. Well, if you stop and think about that, really, David, against, only against God you sinned? Well, what about Uriah? What about her parents? What about her husband? What about the people connected to the soldiers that died? What about, he sinned against the whole nation. David would concur with that. But what he understood was, but first and foremost, I've sinned against God. I think that's important because, you know, we can sometimes brush our sins off or, or, or what's the word I'm looking for, um, kind of minimize them, justify them, minimize them. But guys, every sin we do against one another, every lie, every dirty business transaction, every little whatever, it's actually a sin against God by sinning against your neighbor. You know, there's two it's interesting, it's the holy things and sinning against your neighbor. And I, I thought that was interesting because they asked Jesus what the most important law was. And he said, love God with all your heart, heart soul, mind, and strength. And what? Lo love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two hangs all the law and the prophets. And so here we see loving God, the holy things, loving people, um, sinning against neighbor. And so there's some examples that were there. You know, it talks about 
um, deceiving. Um, and, and, you know, maybe in the, in the arena of a deposit, you know, I gave you a security deposit, and you're like, kind of like, oh, I can't give that back to you because this, this, and this, and in reality, you should have given it back, and you kept back some of the money, or you, or you, you found something, and that was lost, but lied about it. My buddy David over here has found a cell phone, and God bless him, he was like, able to get it back to the guy it belonged to, and we were joking, like, well, he could have, you know, stripped that baby and sold it on Craigslist, too, you know, but th- he would never do that. I would be tempted, maybe, but not him. My point is, is that like, you know, something like that, you find something, you know it belongs to somebody else, but did you find my, uh, no, I don't know what happened to your cloak. I don't know what you lose back in Bible days. Um, but you guys get the point, you know, you, you swindle them, you do a little, you know, it's not like a, a, a total theft thing. It's just, you know, you, you know the system real well in the business and you're able to kind of connive some money out of it and it's dirty. And by the way, I know these things are called unintentional sins, but I don't know how you unintentionally sin like this. I do believe our hearts can be hardened, and we can, like, say, well, you know, business is business, as if your Christianity doesn't affect your business life, as if you're not supposed to run your business like a Christian. But, you know, we can get caught up in stuff, and, and we can be kind of in the business mode and blah, 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 and this is just how things get done, and then the Lord can say, you know, how you did that was wrong. That wasn't good. How you, and you could go, you know what, Lord, you're right. It happens to the best of them, right? And so he says, well, if that happens, you've got to bring your offering. Now, so quickly, I'm not trying to bore you with this. So the stipulations of the guilt offering were holy things and sins against your neighbor. You did something to offend your neighbor. You stole from him, oppressed him. Now, here's where the guilt offering gets very, very interesting to me. There's something unique about this offering, and you might have picked up on it when we were reading. There in chapter f- uh, f- 5, verse 16, it says, He shall make restitution for what he's done. Later in chapter 6, verse 4, verse 5, he says, You will restore, but not only restore, make restitution, but then also add a fifth, that is 20%. I forgot to bring my tithe. I'm sorry, God, forgive me. Cool, okay, now bring it and 20%. Oh, I, I, I forgot to bring, you know, this offering. Cool, bring it, plus it's worth in 20% and give that to the priest. Oh, bro, you know what? I shouldn't have stole that 50 bucks from you. That was wrong. That's cool. I, I better use a different denomination because my math isn't too good. So um, I should have sold $100 from you. Cool, bring 120 What would be 50 Josh? <laughs> Okay, I'm really bad at math. That's really easy math. And that's why I didn't graduate college. Anyways, um, the point is, is that this, this idea of paying restitution. Okay, yes, there's forgiveness. The, the guilt offering was not only designed to not only bring atonement, that is forgiveness and reconciliation in that way, but it was also designed for there to be restitution. And, and, and the question is, well, why? What's the difference? And I'll offer a couple of thoughts. Number one, I think that the whole idea of restitution is involved there, especially in things against the Lord, to perhaps show, and, I, and I'm just throwing this out there. You don't have to take this one. You can take it or leave it. But I think it has to do with the idea of showing true repentance, 
Showing true repentance. Okay, I, I did what was wrong, and I'm acknowledging that, and I, I'm going to make it right. It's not like God needed their money or needed another sheep or needed anything like that. But the idea was a demonstration of, you know what, I'm guilty, I'm wrong, and I'm paying it back, and I need forgiveness, but I'm also just showing true repentance. And here's that extra 20%. I'm making it right. Definitely, though, when you're dealing with a sin against another person, listen to this. This is so important. It is, it, is, it is to me revealing God's heart, saying, yes, you can be forgiven, but you need to make it right with your brother. And you need to go that extra mile. Not, yes, there's atonement, but then there's an extra amount that you're going to give for the idea of bringing restitution, but also reconciliation. Isn't that the heart of the Father? Amen? So, in fact, if you read carefully the, the, the latter part of the sacrifice, the idea was when you sin against your brother, you go make it right with him or her, then you bring your offering. Like God was saying, I'm not real interested in your sacrifice until you go repent before your brother, and if you can, make it right. Not only give him back what was taken, but pay him 20% on top of that. Then come, doesn't that remind you of something Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5? When he says you're at the altar and you bring your sacrifice and you remember somebody's got something against you. The idea there is that you've wronged somebody and they've got it against you. And you're, can, I mean, it doesn't mean that, you know, a lot of people can have stuff against you. You can't control all that. But the idea is you've done something wrong against this person. They have something against you. And he says, leave your gift at the altar and go make it right and then come and bring your offering, right? What is this all communicating? That God is saying, I want you guys to make it right with one another. Because it's not okay to pretend like everything's okay and come in here and bring your sacrifice of praise and worship and play church when there's something against you and your brother and you've not made it right. You guys tracking with me? Do you guys see the heart behind this? And by the way, how cool is that? How far does that go? When somebody's wronged you and they say, you know what, not only am I sorry, I'm paying you back and I'm giving you an extra 20% on top of that. The person that has been wronged, I think that kind of paves the way for them to help forgive that person that's wronged them. Does that make sense? Because they're sensing, okay, that not only have you, you, you've manned up, you've womaned up, I don't know what you guys do, but you, you've, you've taken responsibility for your actions. On an aside, how rad would it be if our justice system kind of implemented these principles? It would be unbelievable, but it's never going to happen. Point is, is they had to bring restitution on top of the sacrifice. Now, what I really love about that, that in and of itself is cool, but bear with me on this. I was telling Steve, um, he mentioned a Sunday or two ago that it's just an interesting thing when you're studying for Bible studies and you're praying, you're kind of getting ready, and, and that sometimes you're like, oh, I'm ready for this, but most of the time you're like, I am not ready for this. And so he texts me today, and, and today was one of the days where I had my sermon notes done all through chapter 7, ready to go, have it all done, print it, cut, paste. That's what I do, literally cut, paste, like kindergarten, like arts and crafts. Um, stick it in my Bible so I have a little reference thing there. I'm all, that's kind of my system, and then I pray, and I'm ready to go. And then, but today was one of those days where I felt like after I got my notes done, printed them, cut, paste, stuck in my Bible, then the Lord gave me my sermon. Then the Lord's like, that's cute, Jason. 
That's not really what I want to talk about tonight. <laughs> and so, you know, I don't know how to exactly articulate this, but let me just, it, it, it's simple but wonderful. With, just like all the other offerings, there's beautiful typology involved here. By typology, what I mean is these, these actual, real, literal offerings and sacrifices picture something bigger, and they point to something larger, and that is Jesus. They're pointing to the Lord. They're pointing to Him being the burnt offering, Him being the grain offering, Him being the peace offering, Him being the sin offering, and guys, Him being our guilt offering. Amen? He is our guilt offering. He died in Jason's place on the cross for the things that I have done, will do, have done, or doing currently, will ever do in my life. He has paid for them all. He bore my sin as a substitute, your sin as a substitute, on the cross for the things we did and that we're guilty of. In the holy things, when we're trying to do right and we mess up, in the, the dirty deeds we've done to one another, unfortunately, to sin against our own brothers and sisters in the Lord, he's died for those things, amen? And we can have forgiveness. Is anybody glad, anybody ever sinned against another brother or sister in the church? You liars, you're sinning against me right now. Everybody, raise your hand right now. Lord, show them. We've all sinned against others and been sinned against. And God is so gracious to forgive us of those things. Amen. And by the way, before I actually move on too quickly, I want to say, if there's something that you know that you're aware of where you sinned against a brother or sister in the church, do whatever you need to do to go make that right. Amen. That's the heart of the Father. But I come to church, I know I'm forgiven. Yeah but you have this wake of brokenness and people behind you. Go make it right. Back to the typology. Jesus is our guilt offering. He has made atonement for our failures in religious things and trying to be good but failing in our dealing with one another. I'm so thankful for God's forgiveness. But just like the guilt offering offered above and beyond forgiveness, it brought restitution. So too, Jesus has not only atoned for my sin, he has gone above and beyond in my life and brought restitution. What do I mean? Do you guys know what restitution is? It's giving back what's been broken, lost, or stolen. And guys, in Christ... We are not only forgiven for our sins, but you know what he has a tendency to do? To restore what's been lost, broken, and stolen because of our sin. Amen? I'm get, I get choked up every time I think about this. Because I am so thankful for what Jesus has forgiven, and only me and him know the dirt he has forgiven in my life and the amount of it. But you see, like me or like you, we can have that moment of euphoria when we realize we're forgiven. When it's not just doctrine anymore, but all of a sudden it just hits you. Do you guys understand what I'm talking about? You can understand a doctrine, but it's a completely different thing when it hits your heart and all of a sudden you go, I'm, for, I'm forgiven. I'm really forgiven. God really, I, I'm forgiven. He's not holding it. 
I'm clean. I'm free. And, and you just get it. And it's just, I'm forgiven of my sin. Hallelujah. But in that same moment of euphoria, uh, just feeling that, yes, there can also come a moment of heaviness. When you realize all the damage that your sin has caused to your own life, to your health, to your kids, to your family, to your church, to your nation. The fallout and the consequences of sin are always a thousand times worse than we think they are. A thousand times worse. I remember standing in a parking lot of my neighbor, the driveway rather, telling me she's leaving her husband. People in our church been there for years. I'm leaving him, that's it, I'm out. And I just pleaded with her, I said, don't do it. Do not do it. And she did. And the fallout was a thousand times worse than she could have imagined. Another incident, same exact thing. That person came back around, praised God, and repented. But guess what? Still a whole lot of fallout and damage. And here's what I'm so thankful for. That my Jesus not only forgives me of my sin, he has a way of restoring what's been lost, broken, and stolen because of sin. Amen? You look at lives that have been wrecked. And, and you know, let, let's be very honest and real about this. Sometimes there are consequences to our sins that you just don't recover from. They're, they're just, they, they are what they are and it'll never be the same again. When the divorce happens or when whatever Sometimes those things you cannot change and they are what they are. And like I said, they'll never go back to the way they were. But you know what? Our God is so gracious that he has a way of in his own way bringing up something new and restoring and bringing life again and bringing back purpose and sometimes bringing back health and, and purpose to your life and, and, and direction. Do you guys understand? Anybody here had restoration happen in your life because of what Jesus Christ has done? I'm so thankful that he forgave my sin, and if he left it at that, that would still give me cause to praise him for eternity without pause, <laughs> right? But he's not only forgiven me of my sin, he's justified me and made me righteous. He's not only forgiven me of my sin and justified me and made me righteous, he's adopted me. That is, he has made me a son in the family with all of its rights and privileges. Not only that, he's given me his Holy Spirit. Not only that, he's healed broken relationships. He has given my life purpose and, and, and a life that was just purposeless and wandering. I've got focus and purpose and Life because of Christ. He's redeemed a worthless life. Amen? And he does that for you. And he does that for me. I am so thankful that Jesus goes above and beyond. It, it, it almost sounds weird to say, like, well, he, he forgave our sins. But he's actually done more than forgive our sins. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because I really feel in my heart that somebody needs to hear that tonight. It's good doctrine, I think, but I think somebody needs to hear it tonight. That Christ can restore the years that the locusts have eaten, Joel chapter 2. I've had my own moment. I've talked to so many people over the years that have had their moments where they're so thankful that they're back with the Lord. Maybe they were with the Lord and then walked away or maybe they just came to the Lord later in life and they just in tears say, I've wasted so many of my years living for myself and caused so much damage 
And I don't know how he does it, but the Lord is able to restore the years that the locusts have eaten. And he has a way of just bringing back. And, and that's what he did with Israel. He told them they were going to be judged. And then Jeremiah, Ezekiel, even Lamentations and other places, he promises, I'm going to restore you. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to restore you. We have a restoring God. Amen. And he restores our lives. And your li- you may feel like my life is so broken. And I'm the cause of its brokenness. You are. And it is. And it may not be the way it was, but I want to give you some hope that my Jesus doesn't just forgive sins. That would be enough. He, he restores lives. And when you come to him in humility and you say, God, restore to me the joy of thy salvation. Restore my joy. Restore my hope. Restore my marriage. Restore my relationship with my kids. Restore my standing in the community. Restore my ministry. He does that by his grace. Amen? Let me read to you a prayer I stumbled upon as I was just kind of considering all this. It's in Lamentations, and I don't say that to like, I was reading in Lamentations. Like, nobody reads Lamentations. It's called Lamentations. It's sad. Anyway, it, but I found this verse. It's awesome, and it's a prayer of Jeremiah. He says, Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Praise God that he's our trespass offering. He has atoned for all of our sins and praise God that he goes above and beyond and brings restitution, restoration to broken, lost, stolen lives. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. As we're standing here, okay, just want to give you a moment. Sometimes we, we run off too quickly. You might say, well, what's the application? What do I have to go do? You know, Really, there is that tonight. I mean, maybe the Lord spoke to you. Maybe you have a brother or sister that you just, their name came to your heart. You're going to have to eat some crow and be a little hum- humiliated, but you need to go to them or write them a letter or send them an email and say, you know what, I'm sorry. Maybe you even took something that didn't belong to you and you ought to send them a check with 20%. I'm not saying we're under the law, but it might be a great way to mend the relationship. Maybe you have to make something right with a brother or sister. Please do that. For God's sake, please do that. So there's that. There's that very practical side of things. And maybe the Lord spoke to you about other things. But I think by and large, I think what, what the Lord would want to communicate tonight is that he's done it all. It's all about him. And maybe here, here and you just say, you know, I thought I'd be this far along but I blew it and I don't know if God can use me anymore or I blew this relationship I don't know if I'll ever be able to get married I don't know know. fill in the blank of a thousand things I'm not saying God will do this will do this and will do this but I am saying my God has a way of restoring what's been broken or lost even self-inflicted wounds and so maybe you're here tonight and you say I just need restoration in this area of my life and it's got to be by his grace and I can't make it happen and I just I need him to do a work in me by his grace maybe if that's you tonight let's just close our eyes for a moment maybe just lift your hand and the reason we do that is the Bible says that we lift our heart with our hand it's like this outward expression of what we're feeling inwardly it's this idea of desperation saying Lord we're reaching up to you in desperation And if that's you tonight, you say, Lord, I just need a a touch. Maybe you need forgiveness. Maybe you need to confess something 
confess it. Maybe you're just overwhelmed by the brokenness of your own sin. Tell him and say, Lord, I don't know how you can do it, but can you, can you do something with this mess I've made? He's so good. Father, I, we come to you not on the basis of justice. We come to you on the basis of mercy. And we say, Lord, would you have mercy tonight? For my brothers and sisters that are just sensing that and feeling it, Lord, would you restore the years that the locusts have eaten? Would you restore the joy of our salvation? Would you restore relationships? Would you fix marriages? Would you fix relationships with kids? Would you fix um, those who maybe uh, have been put out of the ministry but want to go back in the ministry and there's been repentance? Would you restore? Would you just do something that only you can do by your grace? And all we can do is sit back and be reduced to praise and worship. Who are we, God, that you'd be so kind to us? We love you and we praise you. We give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.